You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. You are Liza, aren't you? Yes. My name is Emily. I've been looking for you. Everybody in this hotel disappeared. Every last person. A painter called Spike, who lived here, closeted in his room, had found a key. Tell me, with all those accidents, you think you'll um, give it up now? I couldn't do that if I wanted to. Well, I won't give in. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. This hotel is really convenient to the mouth of hell. Also with us this week is Mr. Troy Howarth. Hi, it's nice to be here. This week we are talking about the 1981 Italian art film from Lucio Fulci, The Beyond. The film stars Catriona McCall as Liza, a woman who has the misfortune of trying to open a hotel which was built on a hellmouth in Louisiana. This proximity to a center of evil only helps spur some pretty strange occurrences and maybe a few lapses in judgment along the way. Fortunately, we have something of a Fulci expert here, as Troy Howarth is the author of Splintered Vision. Lucio Fulci and his films. Troy, as our guest, when was the first time that you saw The Beyond, and what did you think? I think I first became really aware of it because of an article that was in uh, Fangoria by uh, a writer named Loris Kirchi, and it was uh, written at a time when The Beyond was not nearly as well known as it is now. I don't think I saw it until around the mid-90s. I got a hold of a bootleg of it from uh, one of those old gray market vendors. Uh, it was from the Japanese Laserdisc, so it was in widescreen. It was uncut. It had the original score, uh, unlike the version that was released in America uh, theatrically. At the time, I don't know that I, I, I liked it, but I wasn't nuts about it. Uh, I, I think it, it came a little early for me to really appreciate the kind of uh, wonky logic in these movies. At that point, I was still more accustomed to the kind of uh, hammer and universal approach to horror filmmaking. So it, it took me a little while to kind of get used to Lucio Fulci and his excesses. How about you, Rob? I saw this in the late 90s. I think it was 98 or 99 when I believe it was Mr. Tarantino and his efforts around um, restoring and re-releasing films, or at least re-releasing them. Um, this was one of the films that he put out. He put out 
in, in a midnight screening, and I saw it at the Main Art Theater. And I don't know if I was working there yet, but I do remember going to see it. And what was funny is I don't believe I've ha- I've seen it since, but there were certain images in the film as I was watching it. I go, oh yeah, I really remember this. Because um, the one thing that I noticed is that regardless of how uh, you feel about the logic of the film or how you feel about the quality of the technique, there are definitely things in here that visually will stay with you for years to come. I think I finally saw this film just a few months ago, and it was kind of spurred on by talking with Troy. You know, we had him on before talking about Planet of the Vampires, and it's like, okay, let's cover some Fulci. You got this book coming out, and the one that I always hear about is The Beyond, but I never set my butt down to watch it, so let's finally dive into this. And the thing I kept hearing about The Beyond before I even put on the tape was how incomprehensible it was. So I don't know if that made me uh, kind of inured to the lapses in logic or what it was, but I was okay with everything that was happening in the movie. I mean, there are a couple things where, you know, maybe a corpse is in one place and then it shows up in another. But I was like, well, this is a horror film. And I think the best horror films are those that push the boundaries of common sense. The ones that are the more surreal are the ones that I enjoy. Like I've told this story countless times on the, the show before, but when people would rec- you know, ask me for recommendations of horror films when I was working at a video store, I would always go to Eraserhead and Repulsion. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are the movies that I really enjoy, where it's much more about the atmosphere than necessarily A goes to B goes to C. You know, I don't need a body count. I don't need to see, you know, how's this person going to be killed? I mean, there's some interesting kills in the beyond, definitely, but I don't necessarily need that strong of a logic to it. And I think that I was okay with the way that the film progressed and I really enjoyed it. Well, Fulci wrote it um, together with a couple of his old uh, collaborators, uh, Dardeno Sacchetti and uh, Giorgio Maruzio, uh, whom he had already worked with on various other projects. And the idea was to kind of strip away as much of the plot as possible to make it pretty much a succession of just really strong images and, and very, very dreamy. And that's that's something that gets a little abused by a lot of people. They describe a lot of films as being dreamlike and um, I think there's a difference between movies like The Beyond or uh, Mario Bava's Lisa and the Devil or uh, Dreyer's Vampire, which are truly, uh, I think, dreamlike kinds of films, as opposed to some films that are just sort of clumsy and, and awkward and just aren't very well plotted. Uh, I think The Beyond has a, a basic structure. It's kind of like Argento's Inferno. It, it, it has its basic structure in place. And it works well enough for what it is, uh, but it is ultimately more of an exercise in mood and style and uh, uh, atmosphere. And I think that that was the intention. And I think to criticize it for not being um, more plot heavy is really kind of missing the point. The way that this plays out, I mean, we we start off in the past. We have everything kind of set up within the first few minutes. We go back to, what, 1927 Louisiana, where the townsfolk are not happy with this guy. They flay him. They uh, uh, pour quicklime all over him. And he's going to be, I can't really say he's the villain of the piece, because he was kind of protecting this hellmouth or this 
gate to hell, he comes back throughout it uh, as a uh, a corpse, as a zombie, and you don't really necessarily recognize him. But you know, it, I get the point that this is the same guy, especially because he was in this particular room, and we keep getting these calls from room thirty six, and. The opening is kind of narrated by uh, this woman, uh, Cinzia Moriale, uh, who was going by Sarah Keller for this one, and uh, the character Emily. So we get her at the beginning, and then we get her throughout through the rest of the film. So I think there's a pretty strong narrative structure as far as having these two characters throughout the rest of the movie, and Emily definitely has this otherworldliness to her, this whole idea of her eyes. You know, we see her later on. We see her first where she's reading this book and these flames come up. And I love the way that the flames, you know, are behind the opening credits. And then throughout the rest of the film, we don't, you know, her eyes are clouded over almost like, you know, cataracts or, you know, just kind of this really strange blindness that she has. It's blindness and she has a seeing eye dog, but she really is the one who's leading the way, sometimes metaphorically and a lot of times actually. She's leading the way. She leads our character, our main character, Liza, through a lot of the story. She's there for exposition. She's there to kind of help move things along. She's the one who uh, gets the first, um, well, I guess it's the second death out of the way, where this poor handyman sees her in a room and falls off of a scaffolding. So it's it's really, you know, fairly straightforward. You have mostly two major locations a lot of stuff taking place at this hotel the the what is it called the seven gates hotel yes uh, or seven doors i think seven doors right right and i wanted to mention uh, before i forget because it's an interesting point uh with regards to the opening uh, sequence uh, first of all the um the, the villagers, the townspeople, you're seeing two different sets of villagers, and I don't think uh, anybody would ever realize it because it's so seamlessly put together. But the exteriors were done in Louisiana, and they were all sort of local uh, Louis- Louisiana people who came and, and agreed to do the uh, do that flashback scene. And then when the time came to do the interiors, they were in Rome, so it's it was actually members of the crew at that point. So it's not the same group of people. Uh, but from the way that it's filmed and everything, you can't really tell. Uh, also, the um, the point about the um, the painter who gets uh, killed at the beginning. Uh, he, you're right; he's not the villain, and it's a, a theme that runs throughout a lot of Fulci's films, which is that of the outsider figure, uh, the man or woman who is kind of uh, set apart from the rest of the people and is seen as being uh, unusual or bizarre, and he gets attacked and, and brutally. Uh, murdered by the so-called normal people. That's that's something that you'll see in a number of different Fulci films. Uh, that that he was very much on the side of the kind of outsider figures. Um, the the actor who plays the painter Schweik uh, in the opening scenes uh, is also different from the actor who plays it under makeup. In the opening scenes, is played by an actor named Antoine Saint John, who is uh, also known for appearing in Sergio Leone's uh, Ducky Sucker. I was going to ask also, when you talk about Fulci, and I've only seen a few of his films, most familiar with this one and also with Zombie. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that, uh, as you were talking about with the Emily character, Mike, there's this whole thing about blindness, and and that's a 
you know, a, a historical mythology kind of thing that, you know, those without sight are often the seers and right. things like that in, in, in stories. But one of the things that I noticed, not only with that, but in this film and then also in Zombie, quite famously, is eye damage. And yes. was wondering if he, if this is just some sort of reoccurring theme with him or is this some it sort is. of uh, Bunuel-esque, um, you know, yeah. Shen Andalou kind of thing. He he said once in an interview that uh, the eyes the, ha- the eyes have to go because they've seen too much. Um, the first instance of uh, what you could call ocular violence uh, was in uh, Beatrice Chenchi, a historical melodrama he made in the late '60s, uh, where a character is stabbed in the eye. Um, Zombie is the most famous example. A, even more nauseating example was actually in his movie The New York Ripper, where uh, a straight razor is used to bisect an eyeball. So that's kind of uh, uh, an overt Bunuel quote in itself, but obviously a, a good deal more gruesome. So we have the ocular trauma of you know poor Joe the plumber, poor guy. I mean, he he even had a path made for him by Martha, which was just some of the strangest stuff. Here I am, kind of defending how much sense the film actually makes, and that people who say that it's it's nonsensical, you know, are kind of full of it. But there are definitely some strange moments, and that well, is definitely one of them. Exactly. But you think you know if you ever, I don't know how vividly you remember your dreams. I don't tend to remember mine very well, but I know that when I do, they don't make a lick of sense. Uh, things just kind of, you know, you're you're standing in one place and then all of a sudden you're standing completely somewhere else and, you know, you're, you're around people that uh, weren't there before. And I think that was all kind of the point that, you know, that there is an attempt at kind of having people behaving in a way that they just really shouldn't be behaving, but that, that fits into that whole sort of dreamlike scheme of things. So Liza's there trying to get her hotel open, which she inherited from, what, uh, an uncle, I believe. First good thing that's happened to her for a while. And it's nice that we have a fairly competent heroine in this story. And really, the men are the ones who really don't necessarily know what's going on, or they are the victims, which I really appreciate that we have so many male victims throughout this film. You're right. And that's that ties into uh, an argument that's made against Fulci's movies very often is that he's accused of being a heavy-duty misogynist. I think he did have a very complex relationship with women, and and I'm you know we can certainly go into that more later on if you like, um, based on certain things that happened to him in his personal life. But uh, he he was an equal opportunity sadist, and you know Joe gets as as bad as anybody in this movie, and uh, that's just an example. Um, Liza is actually a. a a fairly competent heroine, as you say. She's uh, strong-willed. She's intelligent. Uh, she's likable. She's very charismatic. Uh, very well played by uh, Katrina McCall, who does a beautiful job with not very much. Um, and she creates a strong center, a backbone for the movie that the male characters certainly can't compare with. Not to say that uh, Dave Warbeck, for example, isn't good in his role as, as the doctor. He is, but at the same time, uh, he really does behave like a bit of an arrogant idiot throughout the movie. Yeah, he's very much this whole... He's the scully to her molder, as it were, because he wants to see the proof for everything, doesn't believe in any of this hocus-pocus kind of stuff. Right. And this is a world where there's a lot of strange things happening around here. Well, even at the end, he's saying this is impossible. <laughs> and, you know, he's right, of course, but yet it's happening. 
So we've got Emily showing up at one point, and I definitely think that that is one of those striking images that you were talking about, Rob, the lone woman with her dog out on this expanse of highway with, it feels like nothing around her. Yeah, totally kind of reminds me of, in a similar way, the image that we had in like Requiem for a Dream with um, the Jennifer Connelly character, like on the pier kind of thing. It's just this otherworldly uh, image. Yeah, that was on the uh, Pontchartrain Bridge in New Orleans, and Fulci liked it so much, in fact, that he uh, they, they were able to get the bridge closed down to do the filming. I, I guess he actually did have permits to shoot there for once, as opposed to some of his other films where he would just show up in New York City and just film, uh, and if the police started to show up, they would just you know run for it. But they were able to close that bridge down, and he liked it so much that he posed for a couple of shots where he's sitting in his director's chair uh, on this, you know, never-ending stretch of, of bridge. Uh, it's a great shot. And it's nice that we have this recurring image as well as, you know, I talked about the way that um, Emily's eyes are kind of clouded over. And we start to get that a few more times as we go through here. Famous, we're, famously, we're going to get that at the end. But we also get it with this little girl at one point, this little girl who kind of just shows up at this hospital scene. I talked about how the hospital is really the second major location. I guess there's maybe, what, four, five locations in this thing? Because we talked about the hotel. We talked about the hospital, we talked about the bridge, and then there's also a bookstore in here that we get, and kind of the exterior of the bookstore, where it's Emily talking to a friend of hers about what's going on, and then we get some uh, images inside of this bookstore as well. Yeah, there's the bookstore, then there's the library where Fulci has his cameo um, playing the uh, sort of uh, lazy civil servant that's heading out to lunch, so he leaves uh, poor Martin there to die. Um, And uh, what else? Um, I guess those are those are the major. Well, there's a cemetery as well. Right. Yeah, Martin is an interesting character because sometimes I forget that he's even around because he shows up really very early on towards the beginning, and then he seems seems to kind of disappear for a while there. I don't know that a great deal of thought was put into uh, into that character. Uh, he's kind of a plot device in a sense, I guess that you know he's the one who helps facilitate things for Liza early on, uh, and of course he's the one who starts to get wise to what might be going on, and then of course that results in his uh, very messy death scene. So there's a lot of exploration of the hotel, what's going on there. Uh, there's the finding of. Uh, Schweig, there's uh, you know the death of Joe, all these things happening. There's this scene at the hospital where we get um, you know these corpses kind of coming back. We have this little girl who, to me, like because her eyes change as well, and that to me kind of symbolizes you know her looking into hell. You know, any time that we have some of these really horrific scenes, it seems like we have someone who you know where their eyes change, but you know. Th- this little girl is is our, our first person here. And I like how we get her later on at a funeral where she they, – they shoot it really well, where she's looking down almost the entire time. And it's only towards the end where we really start to get a feeling of this girl hasn't looked up in a long, long time. And then finally when she does, we have this nice reveal of her eyes. And it's like, oh, okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think it ties into what Fulci had said uh, at one point about 
the eyes. You know, if uh, if they're not going to be gouged out or, or sliced up in some way, then at the very least you, you lose your sight because you've seen something that's just too horrific to process. It kind of reminds me of Hitchcock in a way, though, with his women characters that wore glasses. It seemed like whenever a person wore glasses, they had seen too much or they were too curious, so they were going to have to be punished in some way. That's true. Well, he was, uh, Fulci was a, a big fan of Hitchcock as well. About 43 minutes in, I, I made sure to actually stop the, the DVR and look at it and see where we were in the film. And for me, at least in the version I was watching, it was dead center in the middle of the movie. Right at that point, it seems like everything changes. And we have Liza, who has kind of been putting together this whole mystery with the hotel and everything and you know, getting help from Emily with some of this backstory. All of a sudden nothing is there. Like, Emily has gone. No one has seen Emily. Uh, the book that she was reading is gone. Everything has you know, has flipped on its head. So now Liza is this quote-unquote crazy person who has been seeing all these things that just aren't there. That reminds me in a, a funny sort of way. It kind of evokes Polanski for me. And, and Polanski was another uh, director that Fulci openly admired that uh, it's sort of like in Rosemary's Baby, that's that question of, is this woman out of her mind, or is something really happening to her? And, and that kind of question mark that, that dogs her, uh, it's not as ambiguous in this film, because you know we've, we've seen all of these things, uh, and she's not present when a lot of them are going on, so it can't just be that it's being told from her point of view. But it does throw her into a position where all of a sudden she's made to look like she could well just be cracking up. Yeah, we definitely have stayed with her so much that I am on her side. There is no doubt to me that she's the sane one in an insane world, though there are films definitely where I have seen that, where it's like, ooh, I don't know if she's really all there or not. You know, I think that generally tends to happen better for me in books than in movies, just because of the whole idea of me seeing something take place in front of me on a screen seems to make it a little bit more real than when I read about it. I don't know if that makes any sense to you guys. No, I agree. So yeah, then it becomes like a little bit of a mystery for a while with her trying to gather these pieces again. And yeah, she's got the friend who's just uh, the, the doctor character who just isn't having it. He does not believe anything that has been going on. He is definitely the main naysayer. And it isn't for a little while here until we start to get back into it where we have uh, some of these mysterious things start happening again. Definitely the scene that you mentioned before, Troy, the uh, poor poor Martin at the bookstore uh, with, <laughs> with all those, uh, wow, voracious spiders. I've never seen spiders go after a person like this, not even in Kingdom of the Spiders with uh, William Shatner. I mean, this they really go to town on this guy. Well, you know, at, at that point, um, Fulci had developed a reputation for really being the kind of uh, the, the splatter king of Italian uh, genre cinema, which is saying a lot when you think about the fact that uh, Ruggiero Deodato was around at that time, too, and had made Cannibal Holocaust, which went far further than anything Fulci ever did as far as actually incorporating you know, real scenes of, of animal violence, for example. Um, the, the scene is is a great example of what Fulci would do, which is just keep going and going and going and going, and he wouldn't cut away. Uh, it goes from being effective to being absurd to being 
almost laughable, then it, it, because it just hangs in there for so long, you just it, it ends up being very, very effective. Um, yes, there are some very crude and clumsy-looking mechanical uh, pipe cleaner-looking sort of fake spiders there, but uh, cut in with uh, the real ones. Uh, but when it just goes in for those nasty details, like it piercing into Martin's tongue, for example, or, or tearing off one of his eyelids... Um, you know, it to me, it's it's very effective. I, I think it it actually holds up pretty well as as a very strong, uh, gruesome sort of sequence. I think that the effects sometimes are kind of cornball, as you're saying with the the fake spiders and with the real ones, and then uh, you can obviously tell that it's latex at That's times. Sure. But I, I think what it does is that for us, uh, it, it's not as bad as him, but somebody had said once about Ed Wood that he didn't have special effects. He had symbolic effects. <laughs> and I think sometimes it can border on symbolic effects where our mind puts the rest of the material in for us as we're watching it. And it makes it more gruesome than it really is. I think so. I, I just, you know, you have to admire the man's tenacity. He just, if Fulci was a very uh, well-educated, very cultured, very intelligent man, and, you know, he he knew that some of these things were going to look absurd, and I'm sure he was aware of the fact that certain things weren't up to snuff as much as he would have liked, but I think just by piling it on and on and on and on, it just, it takes on a life of its own. And even before that scene, though, I really have to ask again, this seems to be a a motif in this film, the falling death. You know, I don't know that it's any kind of uh, a big thing in Fulci's uh, oeuvre in general, but there is a lot of that, yes. And uh, I think most uh, effectively it's it's in the scene where the um, the guy on the ladder, who is actually played by uh, the head of the Louisiana Film Commission, believe it or not, um, he takes a tumble when, when Martha, or not Martha, but um, Emily shows up. Uh, at the window, and he he takes a, a very nasty tumble. It's just it's dramatic. It's sort of operatic. I think it it just again is something that goes for a strong effect. The eyes, the eyes, eyes. Right about now is you know we get the death of Martin, and then it really starts going into you know one death after another. I think the movie really starts to kick into high gear around here because we have. Joe showing back up, poor Joe, the handyman, uh, showing back up and killing Martha, even though she was so nice to him earlier, he still ends up killing her. And this is yet again, a nice ocular trauma here as he, uh, kind of puts her up on this spike and goes through her head and pops her eyeball out. So I guess what's good for the goose or what's good for the gander is good for the goose here. Exactly. And Martha, of course, is played by an actress named uh, Veronica Lazar, who played uh, the, the essentially the figure of death for Dario Argento in Inferno. And uh, she also had a small role in Argento's Stendhal Syndrome as well. And then we get the poor death of Emily, and this is, to me, the more interesting death in the film, where she's surrounded by the corpses of all these people that have gone before her, and starts shouting, you know, what do you want from me now? I don't want to go back. You can't take me. So it's this whole nice idea that she has kind of escaped her fate. Maybe she's come out of hell, you know, come out of the hell mouth here, and has, you know, 
kind of made her existence back on Earth. But yeah, that's not going to last for long here. And especially when her nice dog, Dickie, decides to uh, turn his <laughs> turn his allegiances in another way and goes and rips her throat out. It's true. Well, uh, there again, I think the, the effects in that sequence are actually uh, extremely well done. And, uh, you know, he get, again, it's Fulci's uh, tendency to just take things and ratchet them up as far as you can go. You don't just get a little bit of blood. You get shooting uh, slow-motion geysers of blood. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's incredibly uh, tactile and uh, very, very dramatic. Plus, when the dog turns on her, that's like the one thing we didn't expect. Yeah. Right, while well, he's been her sort of faithful service dog throughout. And uh, you might expect that, that the poor dog is going to get you know chewed up by a zombie or something, but fortunately for us dog lovers, that doesn't happen. Yeah, if you go to doesthedogdie.com, I, I don't think that he's on there, which is good. Yes, that's probably a good thing. And we've had zombies through this film. You know, it, it, it's strange because they show up at the hospital. Now they're, they're killing or trying to kill Emily. But we don't really get them in force until we go back to the hospital, and then it's just a zombie parade. I mean, it is just a, a zombie holiday at the hospital. Everybody is there. And I love, too, that before we even get to the hospital, we have this whole idea of uh, the doctor and Liza driving. You know, they, they've escaped the house, and they're driving through town, and it feels like they've entered into another world. The way that they talk about how there's no one on the streets and it really feels like they have gone into another dimension a little bit there and of course we're going to get a lot more of that once they make it into the hospital but to me that really seems to be the start of them kind of moving into another plane well it's a nice spooky touch and it's you know there's there's a vein of, of poetry i think that goes through fulci's movies that a lot of people don't really pay much attention to because of the shock effects, but he could do the very atmospheric stuff very well as well. And more low key, subtle effects like that, that, you know, that they're driving through uh, a town that normally is filled with people and all of a sudden it's very eerie and very desolate and very quiet. And I think it works uh, very well just to set the right mood before. Uh, sort of unleashing more mayhem at the end. But as to the zombies, it's an interesting thing because. You know, with the exception of Fulci's uh, zombie from 1979, um, he he didn't tend to have the conventional sort of zombie thing that you see in a lot of these movies with the flesh eating. And uh, in the in this film, the zombies don't seem to be interested in in eating the living at all. Uh, the same was true of the movie he did right before it called City of the Living Dead. They're more sort of uh, symbols of horror and fear and and death than anything else. They don't um, go around, uh, you know, tearing people apart in slow motion. Yeah, you, know, you talked about building the atmosphere, and I definitely think that the score plays such a crucial part in that. Well, it's a fantastic soundtrack by Fabio Frizzi, who uh, started working with Fulci as early as 1974 on a spaghetti western called uh, For the Apocalypse, and he and Fulci worked together extremely well. I would go so far as to say that he was sort of the uh, Bernard Herrmann to uh, Fulci's Hitchcock. Uh, They just had a tremendous uh, working relationship. They liked each other. They got along. 
Um, I mean, Fulci had worked with great composers like uh, Rizzo Tolani and Ennio Morricone, but uh, with, with Fritzi, his, his films really found the perfect sort of oral uh, commentary. Did he, um, as a composer, always work in this manner? Because in a way, when I first heard the music before the credit sequence, it reminded me of uh, Goblin-esque, let's put it that way. I mean, Goblin was certainly in the air. There was no getting around that, that, that the success that they had with uh, Argento on films like Deep Red and Suspiria set a strong, uh, you know, sort of template. But on the other hand, uh, his score for City of the Living Dead is very Bernard Herrmann-esque in many respects. His scores really cover a, a wide gamut. He d- did um, sort of Bob Dylan-esque songs for uh, for the apocalypse that's uh, kind of like what uh, Peckinpah did in Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, uh, these songs that sort of serve as ballads. Uh, he did a similar thing also on Fulci's uh, last Western called Silver Saddle. Very different scores for each film, and good scores for other uh, directors as well. Just an, an incredibly talented composer who's probably not as well known as he should be in America, although uh, I should note he did write the um, afterword for my book, uh, Splintered Visions, and I'm going to be having the honor of meeting him in just a couple of weeks when he plays uh, in Philadelphia uh, as part of an American tour. I'm so glad to hear that he's still around and kicking. Very nice man. Very, very friendly, very down to earth. Um, uh, very happy to talk to his fans. Uh, he's doing this uh, tour. It's called um, Frizzy to Fulci. And it is uh, him playing music from uh, a number of films that he did too, but mostly from his uh, various different Fulci movies, including The Beyond. How do you feel about the pacing of the hospital sequence? Because for me, the first time I watched this, I thought it went on for maybe a little too long because it just didn't necessarily have the intensity that I thought it might have as far as a zombie plague apocalypse type thing. Well, what's interesting about the whole zombie angle is that uh, Fulci always maintained that they were not part of the original concept, that that the... uh, the sequence at the end was pretty much imposed because uh, the German market was demanding zombie movies. So the producer said, you, you've got to work some zombies into this. Um, I, I can believe it because it does almost feel like a uh, an afterthought, although I think it's executed well enough. There's some very um, strong images, uh, you know, in particular the um, shotgun demise of, of the uh, little girl we were talking about before. It, it is, I think, if it feels a little out of sync, it's probably because it really wasn't part of the original concept. Yeah, her death is pretty remarkable. And I like that. That's one of the one of the deaths that we cut away from really quickly, uh, I, I imagine, just to make sure that it doesn't look fake. And I think that that helps out terrifically. But, you know, it's not like the spiders where we're kind of lingering on the spiders or on, you know, the uh, Dickie uh, kind of goring uh, Emily and everything. But her death is so quick and just so brutal. I was like, oh, wow, that is really, really nice. I can't help but wonder if, if part of the um, reason that it's cut away from a little bit, too, is, is could be because it's a child. Uh, which, again, Fulci didn't uh, take any prisoners. He, he had made a giallo called 
Don't Torture a Duckling, which dealt with a series of child killings. Um, that's something you just don't, you don't see a lot of that in horror films in general. It's, it's kind of one of those things, you know, it's like puppies and kittens and children. You just you don't see bad things happen to them very often because it upsets people. It kind of immediately took me back to Night of the Living Dead with the little girl who kills her her mom. You know, the, that is more the fetishization of the death of the mother than of the little girl, but definitely having that vicious little girl, and that's kind of what I wanted to see happen to her. So I was glad to see that happen in this movie. Yeah, it, it's it's a, rem- a well-remembered scene. I mean, it's a still that you'll see the, 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 the half-shot-away face. Um, that's a very, very good effect by Jeanette Rossi, uh, who did uh, the effects, makeup effects on this and a number of other Fulci films. So I guess we should just go right to the end here when it comes to this. This they they basically, you know, I talked about that how they had gone into another dimension when they're going through town and they aren't seeing a soul, and they go into. The, the basement, what is it? They go into the basement of the hospital, and that leads them to the basement of the hotel, which leads them into the Hellmouth, leads them into Hell. And that sequence of them in this other world, this other dimension, possibly one of the most beautiful scenes that I've ever seen. I think it's uh, Fulci firing on all cylinders. I think if the uh, the hospital sequence feels a little... Uh, half-assed in some respects, uh, th- this sequence really sends you out on a good uh, on a good note. I-, I can't fault it at all. Again, when one considers the budgetary constraints and time constraints of what they were doing, uh, it-, it looks magnificent. And just the whole pacing of it and the seamlessness of it. That you know, it- again, it works perfectly, evoking a dream. You know, you're standing. Uh, in your living room, and all of a sudden you're out in the middle of the forest. It just, it, it's beautifully achieved. I know it's reminiscent of the paintings that we saw Schweig do at the beginning, and we really, you know, tie into that. But it, it really felt like they were almost in the middle of like a Hieronymus Bosch painting. You know, it just really felt so stately and just so effective especially like the the use of the bodies on the on the ground and everything the sky kind of being this cloud and the the colors and just everything being this muted um it's like uh, post-apocalyptic a little bit it's just gorgeous gorgeous stuff it really is And, and as a note of trivia i I had heard a story before, and I asked Kedrona McCall when I interviewed her for the book uh, whether it was true, and she believes it is true, that when the time came for all those bodies lying around in the in the landscape, um, you know, they didn't really have money to go out and hire actors, so Fulci and, and uh, his assistant rounded up some local winos and uh, gave them bottles of, of cheap booze and said, here, just lay down and <laughs> play dead. I think that's a wonderful story that really shows how, you know, through adversity, you can use a little bit of uh, cunning to create a beautiful effect. That whole painting thing, I have to say, also reminds me of two different things. One is because it's part of classical literature, it does remind me of like a scene or an image from something like Dante. You know, and the idea of all that. And that, of course, would have been big in sort of classical Italian culture and painting and all of that stuff. And then 
someone who does a similar, who's a, a contemporary of Fulci, but does a similar kind of idea in a film, and it's you know it's effective. It's not it's not his best, but uh, Argento in the 90s with the Stendhal syndrome mm-hmm. had a, several scenes where the lead actress walks into these paintings and I guess you could sort of see a, a similar through line uh, to that kind of idea or maybe even something uh, and this is a little more highbrow and arty uh, like Akira Kurosawa's dreams or something where mm-hmm. you know there's the whole scene with Van Gogh and he's inside the Van Gogh painting and all of that stuff. Well, again, it, you know, it pays to bear in mind that although Fulci is perceived, uh, I think misperceived by a lot of people as kind of a, a lowbrow hack, this was a man who had a very extensive uh, cultural background, and, and he was very well aware, uh, and Sacchetti as well, that, you know, things like uh, the Divine Trilogy and so forth, that, uh, you know, the, the images were going to tie into that. And it is so much a part of Italian culture, I think, that um, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to argue that they had some, you know, uh, kind of artistic aspirations with what they were doing beyond just delivering uh, gory thrills. The Beyond, I definitely think, has stood the test of time. 2015, wherein this movie was made in 1981, still very effective, still gave me the creeps when I watched it, and even when I rewatched it. And yeah, to your point, Rob, a lot of this we uh, owe to Mr. Tarantino bringing this back. Though I do have to say, <laughs> I there was a, a press conference that he held years and years ago. I'm hoping that I can find a copy of it. And it was him and Jack Hill, and they were announcing the whole idea of Rolling Thunder. And one of the first things was Switchblade Sisters, Rolling Thunder being the label that Tarantino used to, to bring back some of these films. And I remember him saying... And it just stuck in my craw for all these years that he was going to bring back the beyond and he was going to show it in its original Italian. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I, I should admit that I, I get a little tired of people going on about Tarantino as if he somehow, you know, is single handedly responsible for uh, the fact that these movies are acknowledged at all. Um in its original Italian's a ludicrous concept, uh, in a sense, because the film was, was shot in English. Um, there is something to be said for, yes, it was shot in English, but it was written by Italians in Italian and then translated, and it had to be tinkered with by the, uh, uh, the English actors, you know, who contributed as best they could. Um, but an original soundtrack as such is really a misnomer with these movies because they were shot they were shot with rough soundtracks, which is to say if there was dogs barking or planes flying overhead or trains screeching by, uh, it would be on the soundtrack. But they would record a track just so they would have some idea of what to plug into people's mouths. Beyond that, uh, they're really it's, – it's not like um, – you know, there was an original soundtrack that was recorded that somehow is automatically superior to the English track. I have to say, I think the English dub on this is actually, for the most part, very good. I think we've talked on this show before as far as the dubbing helping when it comes to some films because it immediately puts you in that otherworldly state where the words aren't 100% matching up with the actor's mouths. A lot of the times they are in this, but even with that, you have that separation as far as everything sounds like it's more present than it was if it was recorded you know, naturally at that, that time, or just it feels like it's been brought 
forward for us. Well, there's something a little off about a dubbed movie. I mean, again, dubbing exists on all films. I mean, it, it's it's done all the time. It's called ADR, uh, where where things are re-recorded, even in American movies, for example. But we have a very concrete idea of, of how films are supposed to be sort of seen and heard in America that, that isn't really uh, consistent with how it's done throughout the rest of the world. Um, there is something that, that can be a little off, but, you know, sometimes if a film is badly dubbed, it can take you out of it. If it's, you know, if you think about, like, the Japanese monster movies, for example, of, of the 50s and 60s, where there's clearly no way that they could sync up English dialogue to the Japanese uh, lip movements, that can be completely ludicrous. But in this context, you know, maybe one or two uh, small roles are a little bit hokey in how they're dubbed, but Katriona McCole did her own dubbing, uh, David Warbeck did his own dubbing, and um, the dubbing on Emily, I think, is very good. Um, she would have been dubbed anyway, if you think about it, because they wanted her to have this kind of slightly uh, otherworldly, kind of almost echo chambery kind of quality to her voice. Well, I mean, in the history of dubbed film and Italian film history has a lot to do with, from my understanding, the fact that Cinecitta was made as a silent film studio and and they continued to use it up into the sound era, but never really improved it. And it just became just sort of a standard of how you do production over there. And the other thing is, too, when you're talking about a lot of low-budget European film, you have people with accents from all over the place. So you may have a French actor and a German guy and an Italian person, and they're all in the same scene together. And if they were all having to speak English live on the set, it would sound like a mess. Well, exactly. And, and you know, you have David Warbeck, who was from New Zealand. You have Catriona McColl, who was from England. Uh, all these Italian actors, uh, French actors, and so forth. Uh, and yes, it's absolutely true that, you know, in, in particular after World War II, so much damage was done to, uh, you know, Italy in general from all the bombing and everything else that has happened. Uh, there just, there weren't facilities for soundproof studios, but the, it became a point of pride. As a matter of fact, Fellini was completely against the idea of having direct sound recording because he thought that, you know, creating a new soundtrack was part of the process. And if memory serves, wasn't there a thing too where, and I might be confusing this with Hong Kong cinema, because I know Hong, the Hong Kong films, there was a big problem with noise from the city. And I want to say that Chinichite had kind of a similar thing when you were shooting there, that it was right in the middle of Rome, so you didn't necessarily have a, a quiet area. Well, exactly. It, w- it wasn't soundproof. And, uh, you know, there, there are famous stories. Um, I remember Brett Halsey telling me about how when he worked with Ricardo Freda, that Freda used to love to bring his uh, dogs to the set and they would just they would howl right by the cameras because the cameras made so much noise they would howl and, and how he had to try and focus on delivering his dialogue. It was very distracting at first, but eventually he got used to it. Uh, it, it was just... It was just the way things were done for a long time in Italian films. It's different now. They're starting to use more direct sound recording, but uh, funnily enough, the the dubbing that needs to be done, the voice performances uh, tend to be of a much lower caliber. If you've seen any of uh, Argeno's more recent films, for example, the English tracks, the, the people that are dubbed just sound absolutely, you know, they could be off of a Speed Racer cartoon or something. 
Yeah, sorry, Mr. Tarantino, but I don't think there actually is the original Italian that's out there. And, uh, you know, you can show it in Italian. I'm sure there was an Italian dub made well, the Italian, and then yeah. subtitle it. The Italian yeah. dub is available on the Blu-ray, and, and uh, you can watch it with subtitles if you wish. I don't think it gains anything from it, though. My favorite is to watch restorations of movies that have several different um, dubbed versions because oftentimes scenes will only exist in certain edits. Yeah. And for and a good example of that was when we did the Deep Red episode and right. the dialogue flips between English, Italian, and at one point German. And you can sort of see right. what got cut and what didn't. Well, yeah, that's what happens. And if there was never, if they didn't bother to dub all the lines into English, that would have that happened on the good, the bad, and the ugly as well. Although they went back and they got uh, Clint Eastwood to and Eli Wallach to dub their lines uh, many, many years later. Although their voices really by that point didn't sound much like they originally did. And then I think they got Rich Little to do the Lee Van Cleef stuff. Is that right? I don't know if it was him or not. He, he sounded. I'm just kidding. You I'm know, totally no, kidding. <laughs> no, I wouldn't be surprised though because it didn't sound uh, so much like Lee Van Cleef. I want to say that they used. I want to say it was Rich Little when uh, David Niven died on one of the. They did. They, yeah. They did yes, and, they, and they um, used, uh, Anthony Hopkins and Spartacus to dub in Olivier. All right. I did want to bring up the um, – Rob, you posted the Ebert review over on the Facebook invite. Yeah, that's good. I like that review. He was not a big fan of this movie. Oh, no. Roger Ebert was I, – I, I always defend Ebert on the level that the man knew how to write a review. And, and these days in the era of the internet where everybody thinks they can write a review, you, you really appreciate um, – the skill that a proper writer can bring to a review that that's coherent and can express um, an opinion uh, in in a clear and coherent manner. Eber was one of those reviewers, though. When he disliked a movie, he definitely could become incredibly condescending, and he was very condescending about a lot of horror films. The Beyond not being a film that he was fond of doesn't shock me, but what did shock me was this very snide attitude where instead of focusing on the fact that you know this movie was done extremely quickly very very cheaply and yet objectively speaking it's a very handsome looking film it's very very well photographed um it doesn't look chintzy he focuses on the goddamn sign in the hospital that says uh what does it say do, do not, not entry, entry. yes okay. Yeah, I guess, you know, David Warbeck and Catriona McCole could have noticed. Maybe they did. Maybe there wasn't time to, to do a new one. Maybe they figured, ah, nobody will notice. Uh, you know, it's it's one of those things that's just in the background. Is that really something worth harping about? Yeah, I mean, there are funny things here and there. We know that with some of these dub movies, there's going to be some strange lines. Like the, uh, you might have carte blanche, but you don't have a blank check. <laughs> Yes, I, I did get a kick out of that. And there again, what's funny to me about that is that's Katrina McCole saying it. And, you, you know, one would think that she would have realized how stupid that was. But, you know, there it is. Yes, it has its moments that are maybe a little funny. But I, I think to blast a movie based on little imperfections like that is, is kind of petty. But isn't really that what makes a cult film a cult film? I mean, to be honest... Like, I, I really honestly wish that the review, while it is a, a good review to read, um, 
it just seems like I mean, and I've seen this before with him. I think there was like a Pink Flamingos review mm-hmm. or there was something where he's like, you know what? There's really no point in me reviewing this movie because it's for a particular audience and they're going to like it. And this right. is you know, like, what am I adding by even reviewing this thing? And and I think in a lot of ways, it's like that with sort of cult film. And I would say that the beyond, even though it hadn't been in wide release in that particular manner, at the time in which he did that review, which was during the re-release in either 98 or 99, it was just a matter of why bother to take the hammers out because we're not talking about you reviewing the latest Kevin Costner film here. I agree. And I think that, I don't know. I mean, I just, you know, for a man who could um, praise something as as um, insightfully as he did with Halloween, for example, um, he then proceeded to butcher John Carpenter's The Thing when it was uh, released, as, as did most critics at the time. You know, it just clearly wasn't a genre that he was very fond of. And I think the, the more graphic the film was, uh, the less inclined he was going to be to like it. So no film's above criticism, and I think it's totally valid to, to write a negative review of the film if you don't like it. I mean, speaking frankly, as much as I like The Beyond, I don't think it's one of Fulci's great films. I think it's a good film, but I don't rate it as highly as some of the other people do. Well, it was no Hoop Dreams or Dark City. That's all I can say. <laughs> I did read some weird criticisms of the film as far as, like, this is set in New Orleans, or sorry, this is set in Louisiana, and people don't have basements there because it's below sea level. And I was like, really? That's that's where you're going to go with this thing? Uh, you know, it, I, I think that's that could be true. I, I think David Warbeck talks on the commentary, which if you haven't had an opportunity to listen to the commentary he did with Katrina McCole, he was literally dying when he did it. Um, he was still in excellent spirits and was hoping that he was going to improve, but unfortunately he didn't. Um, he, he talks about how all the, all the bar stools are, you know, very high and all the, uh, the, the people aren't buried in the ground for that reason. They're buried in, in tombs, uh, you know, or, you know, sort of elevated. So as whenever there's flooding, the, uh, the, you know, the dear departed don't get all rotted. Um, so it's probably true, but, you know, I think sometimes some of these critics, they, they want to impress the reader by showing just how, how smart they are and how above the movie that they're talking about they are. And when, when you become focused on that, I think you lose sight of the basic points of just talking about the movie. So while I was watching this, I mean, of course, you know, I've, I've used the term Hellmouth quite a few times, and that's definitely a Buffy the, Buffy the Vampire Slayer term. So I'm reminded of Buffy quite a few, quite a bit while I'm watching this, but I'm also reminded of one called Verses from 2000 by Royui Kitamara, um, which is about a Hellmouth in Japan. And for them, it's not seven gates of hell, it's 666 gates of hell, and the four 144th is over the Forest of Resurrection, so it kind of becomes this gung-fu, kind of crazy Yakuza zombie film, which I loved a lot, at least the first couple times I saw it. The last time I saw it was at a midnight screening, and I don't know, watching mid Midnight movies, sometimes I really uh, harp on the pace just because it's like, okay, let's get going. And I want to say it just felt a little long at midnight, but I still recommend it. 
But for you, I know, Troy, when we were talking, you recommended uh, watching The Sentinel, and I did see The Sentinel being compared in your book and in a couple other reviews as far as a film that um, the Beyond seemed to have been influenced by. Right. Well, I mean, uh, I don't know that Fulci ever discussed The Sentinel or if it was ever brought up to him. I'm sure that Dardano Sacchetti, who who tends to act like everything that he writes is you know completely uninfluenced by anything else, would probably deny it. Uh, to me, it's pretty clear. Uh, the Sentinel, uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, it was directed by Michael Winner in the late 70s and uh, has a really remarkable combination of old school Hollywood uh, actors and people who were kind of on the up, uh, you know, uh, the up and up in Hollywood in terms, you know, within a few years, they would become major stars. It's notorious for having a finale that involves um, real handicapped people. Uh, being cast as sort of you know misshapen demons and, and so forth, uh, the the controversy obscures the fact that it's actually a very well made movie, um, clumsy and crude as it is in some respects. It actually has some very very good scares, and uh, it, I'm sure that that film was a big hit in Italy, and that that informed uh, some of the plot of the Beyond because you have a basic idea there. Uh, the John Carradine character in The Sentinel was kind of equivalent to the Emily character, this blind priest who is basically guarding the uh, the gate to hell. I was really rather stunned watching The Sentinel because it did feel like an Italian film uh, insofar as so many of those Italian films where they would take actors who weren't necessarily popular anymore in the U.S. or other places and just throw them all into this movie. It reminded me a little bit of Tentacoli, where, you know, where you've got, like, to me, big-name stars, and here they are all together in this film. I mean, everybody in this movie is somebody. It's like, oh, well, let's go to the bookstore. Again, a bookstore like The Beyond. Let's go to the bookstore. Oh, and here's Martin Balsam just hanging out. Okay. Well, a ton of those people. I mean, John Carradine, Martin Balsam, Arthur Kennedy, uh, Eli Wallach. Um, Burgess Meredith. Meredith. I don't think Burgess Meredith did any of the Italian films, though. But those other ones, they certainly all were showing up in a lot of those films at the same time. Um, yeah, I mean, usually it was people that were kind of on their way down. They they weren't commanding the uh, the lead roles in, in Hollywood films anymore. Except this one is a Hollywood film, so it's kind of an unusual. You know, again, you have the old school people like Balsam and and Arthur Kennedy, and then people like Christopher Walken and Jeff Goldblum showing up. Uh, you know, before they were who they would become. <laughs> poor poor Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> Jeff well, Goldblum is dubbed through yes. I think everything but maybe like one line. I don't know why. I have no idea why. Um but if if we want to talk about poor poor somebody, we'll talk about Chris Sarandon. Not that he's badly treated in the film, but if you ever get a chance to listen to Michael Winner's uh commentary on on the DVD or Blu-ray of the movie, uh, he makes some very unkind comments about Chris which is a shame because, you know, but Mike Winter was not a man uh, known for being particularly warm and fuzzy. I have to say, so yes, uh, as we get along, like, uh, when I was first watching The Sentinel, I was just like, I don't know why Troy thinks this is similar. I'm really just not seeing it. And it reminded me more of things like um, The Visitor, where it, it just felt kind of strange and, like again, like a, a, a strange interpretation of a source material that was being brought to the U.S. and everything. And there's some great moments I 
definitely have to say, I mean, Beverly D'Angelo masturbating, uh, the old man having an orgy and causing his daughter to try to commit suicide. I mean, there's just so many great moments in this movie. But as I'm watching, I'm just like, what the hell is Troy talking about? I'm not seeing any similarities here at all. And then, yeah, finally towards the end, once we get the book and then we get the, the, you know, the, the whole idea of the main thrust of it. And I won't ruin it for anybody who wants to see the Sentinel because it's out there. It's available. I think it's, uh, you know, there's even some sites out there that are showing it and all this kind of stuff. But the, yeah, definitely at the end I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm totally on board with this. I totally see what you're talking about, but I do have to ask you, and I don't know how familiar you are with this particular film, but the end of it just seems kind of thrown together, especially the Burgess Meredith character. I, you know, it's one of those movies I, I, I know and like. I wouldn't say it's one of my all-time favorites, but I do like it. I can't recall the ending in enough detail to be able to say uh, whether that's true or not. Some Sometimes Winner's movies uh, felt a little bit slapdash. Uh, other times they were much better. But uh, it could be that maybe they ran out of steam or maybe money at the end of that one, but I'm not sure. Well, I'm going to throw it open to the audience to see if anybody knows, because I did a little bit of research on the film this morning and last night, and I was not able to find an, a satisfactory answer. Because I'll just put it this way, without ruining anything for anybody, at the end of the film, Burgess Meredith is there, and he's kind of, you know, um, really spitting a lot of bile, talking about, you know, uh, where his position is in the world and all this kind of stuff. And he's being shot from one side of his face. Just you're only seeing the left side of his face. And then he just kind of disappears. Like we don't literally see him disappear. It's just there's a, a long shot and we've got these priests there and they're walking out of frame and we never see what happens to Burgess Meredith. I thought for sure he was going to turn his face to the camera full on and he'd have something wrong with the other side of his face, kind of like Chris Sarandon in an earlier scene. So if anybody in our listening audience knows what maybe really happened at the end of the Sentinel, I would really like to know because it just seems so out of place and just, yeah, so slapdash at the end there. And yeah, it, again, here we go. Another uh, great thing when we have old and new Hollywood there with, uh, who was it? Ava Gardner oh, yeah. at the end and Tom Bergeron showing up. At the oh end yeah. The Tom Berenger. Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah, he was in it. Yeah. Sorry, Berenger, not Bergeron. That would have been a whole different movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there is a Blu-ray of that movie coming out, and it has uh, the commentary with Michael Winter, the late Michael Winter at this point, and uh, there's another commentary with Christina Raines, who played the uh, the lead actress, uh, you know, the, the sort of Katrina McCole figure, I guess you could say, in, in that film. Maybe there's some answers on those tracks. I, I can't remember, though. Well, hopefully we'll we'll get some answers soon about that, because, yeah, it just really struck me as very odd. Well, the whole film is odd, really, so maybe that's why I didn't think too much of it at the time. All right, so let's go ahead, take a break, play a few messages from our sponsors, and we'll be back just in a few minutes. Hey, it's the Schwarzenegger. I need your clothes, your boots, and your podcast device. Why? Because this October, on the Films and Swelling Movie Podcast, the boys... We'll be reviewing all five Terminator movies. Yes, all five. Uh, even Rise of the Machines, Talk to the Hand, and Search. 
films and swearing on your podcast apps, iTunes, Skynet, and Stitcher Radio, or visit filmsandswearing.com. If not, consider it a divorce. That's fucking Total Rico. Fuck you, asshole. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. about The Beyond from Lucio Fulci. Now, The Beyond is one of Fulci's better-known works, uh, for better or worse, and our guest co-host, Troy Howarth, has definitely delved deep into Fulci's filmography. Can you talk a bit about Splintered Visions, sir? Uh, Splintered Visions is uh, my latest book. Uh, It was just published um, at the beginning of September through Midnight Marquee Press. 
the idea of the book was to get away from uh, focusing so much on Fulci's horror films and really focus on his career as a whole. Um, I have uh, coverage of all the films that he contributed to in a major uh, way, going back to his days as a screenwriter and uh, then through all his films as a director in all the different genres that he worked in as well. I was able through, uh, partly through Facebook and largely through the assistance of Mike Baronis to uh, get access to talking with a lot of people who worked with Fulci and knew him well. Uh, so I, I was able to attempt to paint a portrait of a very complex man uh, based on uh, interviews that I conducted. I have quite a few interviews with people in the book, uh, including what may have been uh, Richard Johnson's last interview. I'm not sure. Unfortunately, he passed away earlier this year. He very kindly answered some questions about working with Fulci on Zombie. Uh, I have Keatrona McCall interviewed. I have uh, Cinzia Monreale, who played uh, Emily, interviewed. Um, Franco Nero and, and various other people who worked with Fulci. Uh, you know, a, a tricky man, uh, temperamental, but a very talented man who had a very unfortunate life in many respects. And ultimately, the book ended up becoming a lot more ambitious than I thought it was going to be originally. Uh, my, my original intention was pretty much just to talk about the films and give a better sense of his talent and his diversity, uh, which isn't very often talked about. I was so surprised to see that Fulci had worked in just so many genres. I mean, it was very remarkable in how long his career had gone. I had really no idea about Fulci's full filmography until I read Splintered Visions. Yeah, I mean, this is a guy who worked uh, for years with a very popular uh, Italian comedy director known as Steno. Uh, he also worked as an assistant to uh, Roberto Rossellini on uh, one of Rossellini's lesser-known movies. Uh, he had worked with people like Orson Welles, um, and uh, when he started directing, he directed you know movies in the musical genre. He directed comedies. He directed westerns. He directed sci-fi. He directed thrillers. He directed erotica. Uh, horror, um, just you know, just about everything. And crucially, he did well in almost all of those genres. I mean, he really made some very funny comedies, for example, some some uh, very entertaining musicals, uh, some terrific uh, gialli. His sort of foray into erotica was a movie called The Devil's Honey, which I think is a really, really well done movie. Uh, genuinely erotic, but also very. Um, unexpectedly kind of a you know moving and and melancholy sort of a movie as well uh he did he did just about everything and you know he was a journeyman director let's make no mistake about it but uh he was also a writer and he whether he's credited on all of his films as a screenwriter or not he co-wrote most of his own films and he certainly tinkered with just about every screenplay he ever got so i think a good case can be made that he did ultimately manage to get his uh kind of directorial vision uh into every single film that he directed why do you think it is that it's the horror stuff that people seem to know the best i uh, well the simple reality is that when zombie came out in uh, 1979 1980 uh he was not uh well known outside of italy at all and even in italy he had been sort of marginalized um 
Zombie just made such an impression because of his willingness to just say, screw it, I'm going for broke. And most infamously, the scene with the, uh, the splinter into the eyeball. I mean, that's just... It's it's set up in the classic way where it's coming towards the camera and you see the girl's eye, you know, widening with terror, and we fully expect that it's going to cut away, but it doesn't. It just keeps going and going, and it was such a nasty sequence. Um, it just really tapped into that sort of period of time where people were wanting horror films that were more graphic and more violent, and he just became embraced for that. And I think. At that point, they finally realized, oh boy, you know, Dario Argento isn't the only guy in Italy who's who's um, doing this sort of thing. I mean, 1980 was the year that Mario Bava had died, and so it really did become kind of the, the Argento and Fulci show at that point. And it's funny that you say that, because um, that he did horror, uh, not only horror film, but uh, comedies, because there are times when I'm watching even his horror films, and it seems like there is an element of humor. Now, I don't necessarily know if that's deliberate or if it's just the dubbing or whatnot. It could be a combination of things, but Fulci definitely had a very uh, sardonic sense of humor, and I think that the humor is is there, and I think that, you know, uh, a classic example of that is a film he did called The New York Ripper, which is a very uh, incredibly uh, grimy and gritty and, and disturbing film, but yet you have a, a serial killer who quacks like a duck. And I think that the fact that that's amusing is not unintentional. I, I highly doubt that the man was that stupid that he didn't realize that people were going to chuckle at that. When it comes to these comedies, I mean, I've watched a handful of 50s and 60s Italian comedies, and I have to say, for me, they just don't translate how was that experience for you watching all of these old comedy films? Well, it was interesting because my, my only exposure to a comedy team known as Franco and Ciccio uh, prior to writing this book was through the film they did with Bava called uh, Dr. Goldfoot and the Girl Bombs in America, which is really one of the worst films ever made, at least in that edit. The original Italian version that Bava supervised is better, but... I can't say based on that movie that I thought that Franco and Ciccio were very funny. And indeed, Fulci would later dismiss Franco and Ciccio in interviews as sort of a you know poor man's Laurel and Hardy. But they were hugely popular in Italy in the fifty in the sixties, really, in particular sixties and seventies. They were hugely popular. They made over a hundred films together, uh, parodied just about every genre imaginable, and. Um, Humor is a difficult thing to translate. Uh, you know, things that are funny to the British aren't always funny to the Americans. Things that are funny to the Americans aren't always funny to the British, and so forth. Um, it's helpful that at this point, most of these films are available, uh, albeit not officially, but through the sort of fan circuit uh, with with English subtitles. So, and and in cases where they couple of films that weren't, I had the benefit of some Italian friends who could help me to understand what was going on uh, and sort of help contextualize the humor so that I can understand what, what the point of it all was. Uh, I have to say that I think that most of the films that Fulci did with Franco, Franco and Ciccio are, are very, very well paced. Um, they don't have any fat on them, and a lot of the gags are very funny. Um, that being said, I think 
Fulci's best comedy is one that is readily available on DVD in America. It's called The Eroticist. Uh, completely nonsensical title, but it's a political satire about a uh, Italian politician who is believed to be a homosexual, who is actually not, but he does have a uh, an ass fetish, uh, which starts landing him into some hot water. It's it's a combination of very very pointed uh, critical uh, attacks on Italian politics and on the Catholic Church in particular, with some admittedly lowbrow humor. But it's actually I think very very funny movie. Um, he he knew how to time gags very well, especially sight gags, and there are some very very funny ones in in a lot of his comedies. So we talked a little bit about his comedies. I know that he did some jolly, some spaghetti westerns, but really, you know, you mentioned that the Beyond isn't necessarily one of his best for you when it comes to his best things, your favorite films, which I know aren't necessarily the same thing. Some people make fantastic films that aren't necessarily near and dear to our hearts. But for you, what are some of your favorite Fulci films? I think his best film is a Jallo called Don't Torture a Duckling. Uh, it was actually one of the films that he was very proud of as well. Uh, it's, I think, one of the best Jally ever made. Uh, it's frankly one of my Ten favorite movies of all time. I, I really love it. Um, he was also very proud of a film, a historical piece he did called Beatrice Chenchi. That's another film that I like a lot. Um, it's a beautifully crafted movie that really shows that he could handle a kind of period piece and do it extremely well. Uh, it's one. Of, it's one of the very few period movies I've also ever seen that, that ever acknowledges the fact that. You know, people used to wear a hell of a lot of clothing in those days, and when it was summertime, people sweated a lot, and they were pulling at their clothes a lot, and it was extremely uncomfortable. Um, usually when you see period pieces, everybody looks so prim and pristine and proper, but this is a movie that, that shows a little bit more of the realistic approach. I alluded to a spaghetti western he made before called Four of the Apocalypse, which I absolutely adore. I think it's a fantastic film, readily available on DVD from uh, Anchor Bay. Uh, I highly recommend it. Um, and uh, among his horror films, my favorite is City of the Living Dead, which came before the Beyond, but for my money is is just slightly more effective in its uh, overall impact. So how long did it take you to put this whole project together? Because I know that we were talking about this last time when we talked about uh, Planet of the Vampires. Um, I don't know if it's a good thing or not. Maybe it's not, but it doesn't take me very long to, to write my books once I get started. Um, I, I suppose I just become very uh, focused on the goal of finishing it. Um, you know, this was a little bit different for me because I was able to interview a lot of different people by phone and by Skype and through email. So um, that, you know, set a different kind of tempo. But I, I, I it didn't take more than a year, honestly, to do the whole thing from the time I started to... Uh, the the you know, the last touches I put on the manuscript, not not more than a year. How's that make you feel, Rob? <clears throat> I shake my fist. <laughs> like I said, I don't know if that's a good thing or not. I I've been cranking them out so quickly lately. Sometimes I you know I hear people talking about oh, it took me thirty years to write this book, and I think oh god, am I doing something wrong? But I don't know. <laughs> I, it is what it is. Uh, I, I don't. I'll put it this way: if I write fast, I don't write recklessly. I, I do. Uh, 
do my very best to make sure that everything is um, accurate. And, um, you know, so some people may just don't have as much time for whatever reasons, uh, depending on their circumstances in their personal lives or whatever, but between uh, juggling, you know, a, a job and, and various other responsibilities, um, once I get started on a project, I do stay very, very focused on it. Very cool. Hey, is there a place for people to uh, keep up with you and buy the book? Well, I'm on Facebook. Uh, I am also on Twitter, although I really don't understand Twitter very well. Um, I'm on Twitter as at Bava Freak. I'm on uh, Facebook under my own name. I have Facebook pages for my different books, including Splendid Visions. Uh, purchasing them, uh, you can, the, the, well, first of all, I should say there are, Splintered Visions is available in black and white and in color. The reason being that because of the size of the book and the amount of, of color, uh, the, the color version, uh, would be more expensive. So you can get it through Amazon, you can get it through, uh, Midnight Marquee, uh, which is www.midmar.com. Uh, if you're in the UK, you will be able to get it through Hemlock uh, in England. Uh, I just received word today that the Metaluna uh, bookstore in Paris is going to be ca- uh, carrying it as well. So there are different options out there. Well, hey guys, let's take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Hey, wake up! Wake up, everybody! It's a gorgeous day! Gorgeous day! Come here! 20th Century Fox presents the story of Carla Moran. The most extraordinary case in the history of psychic research. Everything broke loose and went crazy, and everything was shaking. The bed was shaking, and the walls were shaking. And like uh, like an earthquake. No, it wasn't like an earthquake. It was much stronger than any earthquake. Oh wait a minute! I, I, honey, I don't really understand this. I, you were attacked. Or, or you weren't. It happened. I was raped. You were raped by whom? I don't know. There was no one there. A team of experts will investigate her life. Why does he attack you, Carla? Not anyone else. Why is she going to such lengths to support this delusion? And they will find more than evidence. They will find... The Entity. That's right, we're back next week with a look at Sidney J. Fury's The Entity. We'll be joined once again by guest co-host Daniel Kremer. But before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Troy Howarth, for joining us. And Troy, just remind people again where they can go, best places to pick up a copy of Splintered Visions, the films of Lucio Fulci. You can get it through Amazon. You can get it through the Midnight Marquee website, which is www.midmar.com. Uh, if you're in uh, Europe, you can order it through uh, Hemlock, <clears throat> which is a, a book uh, distributor in the UK. Um, there's also going to be copies stocked at the Metaluna bookstore in Paris. So there are different options out there. And um, if you're in America and you're looking to get it at the cheapest price, though, go to www.midmar.com. They have it at the, uh, the best, best available rate. 
Well, we'll be sure to link to those places over at our website, projection-booth.com. Thanks again, Troy, for coming on the show, and thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to return the favor for all this free entertainment, think about heading on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash projectionbooth and giving us your hard-earned cash there. If you can't do that... If you want to do something for free, go on over to our iTunes page, leave us a review, and maybe some stars. Five would be preferable. All of those links and more are available at our website, projection-booth.com. It's a lot easier going there than going straight to hell.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.